Welcome to another episode of Talking Sense. I'm here with one of my favorite people, Ashley Stepien, VP of Revenue Marketing at Pendo. And today, Ashley is going to talk to us about how her background in revenue marketing is now meeting customer experience. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And according to LinkedIn, you are the living, breathing intersection of sales and marketing. So tell us what that means. So mainly what I'm concerned with for Pendo are all of the marketing activities that generate revenue. Um, and in my world, that's all things field marketing, uh, digital marketing, customer marketing, partner marketing, anything that could potentially influence the revenue cycle. Um, and I work really closely with my revenue team and our chief revenue officer to make sure that everything that I'm working on, that marketing is working on, is actually yielding revenue and really having a big impact on the sales team. So how is that different than regular marketing? Yeah, I think probably what makes it different is that um, the relationship that I have with sales is uh, one team. We're really, I'm, I truly feel like an extension of the sales team. And every program that we develop is highly integrated to make sure that there is a sales motion that complements any marketing motion that we're doing. So we don't build anything in a silo. We're not running programs without their knowledge. They're really a part of it and they have um, a role to play in every program that we execute. Okay, so ha how have you, are you then 100% gold on pipeline or bookings or revenue? Yeah. Talk me through. I live and die by the pipeline. Um, so every morning I wake up and I'm looking at the same dashboard as my revenue team. Um, and I'm looking at the funnel from the top straight down to the bottom to see how we are either influencing or sourcing the pipeline at every stage. What is your goal for sourcing? How much are you on the hook to source? I'm just curious. Yeah, that's a good question. So it depends on the segment. We have different goals based on different segments. So um, for our corporate and commercial segments, it's 50-50. I'm on the hook for 50% of it. Um, for enterprise, it is 30-70. And then um, for any sort of- 30? 30 marketing, 70, 70 sales. Okay. And then any sort of emerging markets are, are things that are kind of yet to be seen, but can be 70, 30. Talk us through the different motions. It sounds like you've got channel, inbound, outbound. How are you thinking about all of those? What's your advice? Um, I try to think of them as kind of all one motion. Um, I think for every program that we have, there are inbound and there are outbound motions um, that we try to think of holistically in, in our approach. So for um, all of our inbound, that's always the most popular thing with our sales team. That, you know, makes their lives a lot easier. So the more inbound, the better. Um, and in terms of our marketing mix, our priority is always gonna be inbound. Yeah. What are you doing to drive inbound? What's the most successful thing you've done to drive inbound? The thing that seems to be having the biggest impact is when we develop bot leadership in partnership with other companies that are going after the same market as us or have a different point of view, or we complement each other from a technology stack standpoint. That's the stuff we really see the most lift on. So almost like brand buddies, like we're, we complement each other and then yeah. they promote to their target audience, which yeah. is also yours and you sort of amplify. Right. And, um, for instance, you might find a partner that um, is stronger in one market where you're not. 
um, and there's kind of a give to get. So we're based on the East Coast. A lot of uh, Bay Area companies are trying to break into the mid-Atlantic. It's a tough market. We have it cornered. So um, we found that we really do well with benefiting with Bay Area companies to help them uh, tap into the mid-Atlantic and the East Coast. And it definitely helps to tap into the Bay Area deeper with them. So when I met you, you were a customer experience consultant. And, you know, I learned so much from you about focusing on the customer experience. So tell us kind of how that customer experience background is meeting demand gen these days. So I think for me, uh, given my background in marketing technology, I always looked at the customer experience from um, the beginning of the customer lifecycle and where we first meet a customer and, and what that experience is leading up to the sale, through the sale, and then picking back up again around the renewal. Um, the difference is now at Pendo, because of our ability to track that in-app customer experience, now we have that full 360 degree view of the customer experience. I know everything from the marketing side. I know how the sales experience is going, but now I know what the experience is in product. And I've started using that as an um, opportunity to do in-app marketing. So a lot of messaging inside our application where our customers are, so I can identify those advocates. Um, I can also figure out who's not having a great experience and potentially give them a different message or have our CSMs follow up with someone who's feeling challenged. Um, or else I can use it uh, as an opportunity to simply tell them what's going on. If we have an event coming up, a user conference, things like that. So the customer experience for me now is really brought into that full customer lifecycle uh, before they're a customer, during the customer conversion, while they're living in the product. And then when they come up again for renewal, I have all of that visibility now. So give me an example of something you've promoted in-app and, and how that showed up or... With our in-app messaging, we're able to customize the message for exactly you. So it might be that you, Latney, logged into our system today. You would get a pop-up message saying, hey, Latney, our user conference is coming up. Here's a special message from your CSM uh, telling you about a special offer just for you. And that way you're able to uh, convert directly in-app, click through to the registration from there and um, make sure I'm capturing your attention where you are. I don't have to rely then on email. I don't have to rely on hoping that you come to our landing page and, and uh, join us that way. So capturing your attention where you need to be. Love it, love it. Now, uh, one of the things as I was consuming your content is you guys shared a lot of great information about MPS. And MPS was something that we lived and died for and with at Aperio. Um, glad to see it still in use. Maybe like, what are some best practices for someone who's trying to launch an MPS program? Yeah, MPS. So um, this is a topic near and dear to my heart and to Pendo's heart. I think historically people look at NPS as we send you a survey once a month to see if you're enjoying your experience. Um, hopefully you open that email and you take the survey and, we, and hopefully we get you on a good day. Right. Um, in reality, NPS is something that should be an ongoing dialogue, um, something that you're capturing in real time while people are in the experience. So we do in-app 
NPS surveys. Okay. Where you're actually in the tool. You're, you're living in that tool right then. You can give us some really direct pointed feedback. Um, and it doesn't need to be once a month. It can be often. I can check in with you very regularly. Um, that gives us more of a pulse on what your experience truly is versus crossing our fingers that you fill out a survey at the end of the month. So what, are there any interesting differences in the type of results you get completely in app versus survey? So maybe share some just like, wow, that yeah. was different. Um, so one of the things about in-app is the conversion rate is huge. You're going to get far more um, people filling out your NPS surveys than through email. Um, so participation in itself gives you a much broader view of what the customer experience is really like. Um, secondly, because more people are participating and um, we're getting that data more regularly, we're able to look into that data and segment it in meaningful ways for us. And what I mean by that is now I can segment that data about what kind of user you are, an admin experience versus somebody who might log in ever so often. Right, because that's going to be totally different. What I Completely. want and expect is totally different. Completely. Um, and then I can also segment on your company type or your industry. Um, I could do it by your job title or I could do it um, by how long you've been a customer. So that way I can take that into consideration um, when I might follow up that NPS survey, I can pack, now make that NPS data actionable too. So if you were to fill it out and you're having a bad experience, your CSM can get that information right away, pick up the phone and call, intervene, fix what's going on with you, and then you're no longer at churn risk. So being able to keep that regular pulse is what makes the difference in, in kind of an ongoing in-app NPS experience versus once a month, cross your fingers, hope they participate with you. So often the buyers, the, the personas that buy are not always the personas that use. And the renewal is usually a mixture of personas that use, but maybe potentially personas that buy and, and didn't use. Yeah. So how do you capture those, call it economic buyers, that maybe are never going to log into the app? Part of it is being able to create the, um, tracking the, the value that they're actually getting it from the tool. So with a tool like Pendo, we're able to give them so much data about their own user base that you couldn't get in any other way. Um, if I told you, I'm gonna give you a list of every single customer that's at risk for churn next quarter, that's gonna make you smarter. Um, and truly the only way to do that is to be able to look at adoption and the way that a, a, somebody's using your tool. So, so that's insights to that persona, that decision maker that maybe isn't using. Right. But to be able to say, hey, we're gonna tie this back to churn or upsell or exactly, cross Exactly, like we're, we very rarely have probably a, a true uh, a VP of sales using Pendo, but that data for them to know what their churn risks are or where there's opportunity for upsell or cross-sell, that's priceless. So that's the value that you can bring outside of um, your day-to-day -day users. Love it. How do you see marketing automation today and its relevancy? It's um, a really good question. So I think and it's been this way from the beginning, marketing automation can be used for good or for evil. Um, but the best 
marketing automation users or, or companies who are leveraging it are the ones who take into consideration data to create a more customized or personalized experience for their end users. Um, the more you know about people, the more marketing automation is effective. Any monkey can set up a nurture program. I can send out an email drip program uh, to my entire database, no problem. Does that mean it's gonna be effective? Mm, probably not. So I think where people go wrong with marketing automation is they get a little too comfortable with just setting it up and letting it run. Um, when in reality, it's all about creating that customized experience. And that's pretty hard to automate on a grand scale. So being able to take a step back and ask yourself, do you know your customer well enough to create an effective marketing automation flow? I don't think most companies can say that they can do that confidently. Um, and it does require a lot more insight and um, thought than I think a lot of people realize. Do you see the um, newer activation tools like a sales loft, like an outreach, one day part, just totally replacing marketing automation? That's a good question. So we are also outreach customers. Uh, we love outreach and we're Marketo customers. We love Marketo. We use them for really different things right now, but I can very much see a future where uh, they, they start to converge on each other. Um, and already now, you know, we do ask ourselves, what are the things that should live in Marketo versus say an outreach? Um, and I, I think we're, we're kind of navigating that real time. Um, I think everyone is, that's why I asked the question. Yeah. I think that um, there will come a time where not even those tools necessarily kind of um, cannibalize each other, but even the CRM. Like I, I think that we're seeing all of these tools start to converge a little bit more and, and there's a lot more overlap than there's ever been. There's a lot of tools masquerading as a platform uh, when in reality there are features and functions that you know would maybe make your CRM more powerful. And I think we're gonna see a lot more consolidation of those sort of tools to build up these platforms like Marketo, to build up these platforms like Outreach. And yeah, I think it, it's gonna start to converge more, especially as we're seeing marketing and sales start to align much more strongly than they ever have, sharing technology, sharing data, sharing goals. Um, it's inevitable that these tools are gonna start to have to align as well. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean our vision is to create a next generation platform for sales and marketing. Like you are basically our persona when we think about needing AI and big data and insights, and we don't think anyone has good data today, so you have to tap into a, a broader AI base um, and, and I, then be able to orchestrate all different kinds of outreach. A lot of marketers who live in those tools day to day don't necessarily know the questions to ask yet. Um, and I think a lot of times they lean on marketing leadership to help guide those sorts of, um, that sort of analysis. So I'd love to see um, more thought leadership on the right questions to be asking the data. Um, I think there is a reinvention of the funnel. And I've had a bunch of different guests and they've, you know, some talk about a tea funnel, some talk about now an hourglass funnel. Yeah. Um, we talk about a dark funnel, which is all the activity that you don't know about. Um, 
I don't know. I, I tend to scoff at the reinvention of the funnel. Um, I think if anything, maybe it's less a funnel and more of a cycle than, than a funnel. And I think you and I probably both agree on that. Um, and, and that's a tough thing to track. A funnel is a pretty easy thing to measure. Well, I think that's why people like it. Yeah. And it's, it's, and it's set up, if you have a marketing automation tool, it's set up, it spits out reports, whether they're good reports or the right things to measure, you have a trend mm -hmm. and it feels like comfortable. Right. You've got your MQL to SQL conversion. Right. And it's wired. Right. And so letting go of that is sort of, feels like the great unknown, even if it's for a better, more predictable outcome. The funnel is maybe not what needs to be fixed. The what needs to be fixed or addressed or figured out, and I think we're all trying, but no one has done it spectacularly well, is um, the question of attribution. And we saw a bunch of tools pop up around this, um, and some of them are really good, but what's really lacking out there is the thought leadership and the definitive models around the right way to track marketing and sales attribution to understand effectiveness. Um, what my team is really working towards now is that attribution modeling. How are you, which way are you leaning? We're working towards adopting, uh, right now we're in a U model and we're leaning towards a W model, which essentially says um, that you're tracking the first touch uh, or the lead source, the touch before they become an MQL, a mm -hmm. marketing qualified lead, the touch before they become an opportunity, before closed one, and then at the renewal. So you'll be able to track the whole, your um, effect on the whole life cycle. And you can weight those touches differently. So not every touch is created equal. You might say that the first touch and the touch before closed one um, should get the lion's share of that attribution. But um, that's on you to decide and, and customize what you think is most important. Got it. So you take all those touches, you weight them. Uh, how do you capture where, you know, is it, is it based on campaign and tagging in Salesforce to try to, to kind of understand those things? Yeah, we are religious about our usage of the campaign object in Salesforce. Okay. Um, we track every single touch um, and then we leverage um, lean data for their attribution reporting. Uh, so they show us the model uh, they show us the, the life cycle of a, an account and every touch that we've had along the way and then support the, the W model. Oh, okay. So they've helped you kind of put this W model yes. in place. Yes. Awesome. All right. So you're putting this sophisticated attribution model in place. What is that showing you? Where are you investing? Um, so I love that question. And it's a question I had to ask myself this past quarter. Um, I wanted to earn leads and not buy them. And I think my whole team really took on that mentality for this year. Um, how can we feel really good about the leads that we're generating and generate higher quality leads that convert faster for our sales team? And ultimately we decided it was fueling the content engine. Okay. So building more thought leadership, um, building more webinars, things that are more accessible, that are pendo produced, that we can own that we can put in the bank and that we can leverage in multiple ways 
those have been going so much further for us. Uh, the conversions have been so much uh, more reliable as opposed to an event. Um, so we're really trying to focus on earning versus buying leads. Um, we've really scaled back our, our advertising even. We've scaled back um, any sort of content syndication leads that we're bringing in just because uh, those were colder leads and they just took so much longer to convert and they were really expensive. So it was kind of a no-brainer to go deeper into our own content. There's a big difference between creating content and creating thought leadership. Yep. So how do you maintain that quality? So I think we have two tricks up our sleeve that, that I'll share. Um, the first, I've talked about a little bit, but uh, the partnerships. So being able to lean on partners to contribute to your content and vice versa, um, it adds a new voice, a new point of view, new perspective, and it, and it just brings something different to our audience that maybe they haven't heard before. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing, which is our bigger secret, is we actually have um, a thought leadership platform called Product Craft, which is run by Pendo, but it's a community and it's contributed to by the community. So in reality, our own targets write a lot of our own thought leadership. They um, produce a lot of editorials on their thoughts on what's going on in the product management space. Um, and we're able to leverage that um, as a third party view, but um, a fresh perspective. And um, it also gives us a lot of insight into what's going on in the market. Okay, so I love that. So it's called Product View. Product Craft. Product Craft. But it's a module of Pendo? So or, it, are you, or it's your own? We, we own it and run it, um, but it's its own website, its own community, um, its own database. So we don't mix databases. We, we truly honor it as a thought leadership platform. Um, but the contributors write their own editorials and then we can leverage those articles for a lot of our own nurture, our, our own um, content that we're putting out into the world. How did you get them motivated to want to do that? So I think that there's... the worst is if you have a community and a website and all that and you yeah. are all excited about it and you have like two people. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, like the event where no one shows up. Well, <laughs> it's been a labor of love. I, I know that my team... Uh, would kind of be laughing at me now. It's been a labor of love. They, they've had to invest a lot in it. Um, and it's not to be confused with our user community, which is different. I mean, that, that's okay. truly Pendo content that we're reaching out and, and building a community amongst our users. Product Craft and, and the community around there, um, they may be Pendo customers, they may not be. Gotcha. Um, but the commitment to that community is not, nil. It, it's a low barrier for entry. And I think that what's going on with social media, um, if you're part of certain groups in Facebook, there's a real hunger for true community, not communities that are built around products, but communities built around functions. Um, so I'm part of a pretty um, active group, women in product on Facebook. And um, the way that these women support each other and share tips and tricks and um, help each other through interview processes or how to navigate a tough business initiative is amazing. So that really proved to me that there's a hunger for connection outside of product. And that's what we wanted to foster with Product Craft. 
give people a place to build connection, build a network, build a community around the function of product management and product leadership, not necessarily users of our tool. Is it like a Salesforce community? Is it a website? It's is truly it a Slack just a, channel? It's truly just an editorial website where we put up new content every day. And, and people can just say, I have something I want to write. Yeah. And they can submit it. And then um, we work with them to make sure that, you know, it, it's adequate and, and original enough. And then, yeah, we put it up on the site and we promote it out um, to the subscribers of Product Craft, not to be confused with our own Pendo database, truly respect it as its own database. And I was telling you that I'm, while I work for an ABM platform, I'm really over ABM. <laughs> And I really think it's just good marketing and I'm kind of calling BS on it. Give me your take, Miss, Miss Stepien. All right. Am um, I out of line? Because no. that's your job. You know, you yeah. part of your job is to make sure I'm not out of I, line. I'm really refreshed to hear you say it, actually. Um, I, I agree with you. I think ABM is maybe just a title for good marketing. My biggest challenge with ABM has always been that um, it starts with marketing. And in reality, if you're going to be successful with ABM, it's got to start with sales. It's got to start with how they go to market and how they navigate an account and how they swarm an account, um, how they're collecting data about an account and just what their account strategy is. If they aren't strong, um, in their conviction to do account-based selling, I will never be successful doing account-based marketing. So I think it really has to be a philosophy that everyone gets behind in order to do account-based marketing in a way that's meaningful and in a way that sales and marketing will align to, to make the most out of it. Otherwise, it can feel um, like you're not getting any return out of it. If you're B2B, but your motion is more B2C, you know, one buyer, fast, close cycle, mm -hmm. you know, potentially walk up, um, e-com, you're sort of using a jackhammer to swat a fly. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Um, on, on the flip side of it, it could potentially be so powerful. Um, but if your consumer, your which for me is my salesperson, doesn't take advantage of all of the insights and the data that I'm giving them and, and kind of the instruction on how to navigate that account, um, it's wasted. Yeah, they've got to be, want to activate on it. Right. So I found that that is um, the biggest hurdle to get over when it comes to account-based marketing is aligning philosophically with your sales team on how they're going to market around the account. You're one of the most baller women I've ever worked with. And I learn something every time we're together. So that's one of the reasons I'm so glad to have you on the show. Um, I also remember a time when you were on maternity leave and you were thinking about not coming back to work. And I'm so glad that you came back and maybe give some advice to people who want to try to have a family. I know your husband works too. Like, how do you make all the pieces of this crazy puzzle work? 
I think there are probably three things that have to happen in order to feel good about going back to work after you have kids. Um, the first is you really have to like what you do and feel passionate about your job and uh, the impact that you're having and, and the company that you're working for. Like if you're going to take time away from your family, you want to know that it's going towards something you care about. Um, the second thing is the values of the company. Um, I've been completely fortunate to work for companies that really valued um, work-life balance. At Pendo, one of our core values is promote life outside of work. Um, my CEO has a bunch of kids. He's like the best dad. He loves kids. He's such a supportive husband. And I see him live that value, which makes me feel better about living that value too. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third thing is having a support system and a caretaker that you feel really good about. I think leaving your kids at home can be tough. Um, and if you know that they're in the right care, then you feel good about it. Um, and, and I think if you don't have all three of those things, you're always going to feel unsure about your decision to go back. But if you have those three things figured out and clear line of communication with both your company and your management, then you're going to feel good about going back. Yeah. Carson and I talk all the time about we have our work team. We've got our home team. <laughs> the home team is really important. You got to have the right support structure Completely. everywhere. Completely. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm glad you came back. It was a pleasure working with you then. And I'm glad we still get to, to work together now. Thanks for Same. coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It was great.